If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Today we begin a new series in which we will study the book of Esther. It's one of the two books in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible for that matter, named after a woman. Ruth is the other, uh, a book that we studied earlier this year. Chronologically, the book of Esther is at the end of the Old Testament. It comes after Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the accounts of the return of the exiles from the Babylonian captivity and the many difficulties that they encountered. But Esther, along with the majority of Jews, stayed. They did not go back to the promised land. As one author puts it, not having enough zeal for God's house, the temple, the Holy Land, or Jerusalem, they were unwilling to face the difficulties involved. And yet they saw themselves connected to the people of God. One could argue that they should have been excluded from the protection and providence of God. They were unwilling to go back to the place he had given them. They should not be included in any account of the people of God. But our God does not deal with us according to our weakness and folly. As we read earlier, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, for which we should rejoice and bow in deep humility. Some background material uh, on the book of Esther. First of all, the authorship. We do not know for certain who wrote this book. That information is not available. Some have suggested that Mordecai, her uncle, was the one who wrote it. And this is in part due to something in chapter 9 that speaks of him writing. But I think it's sort of a stretch. The fact is we simply do not know who wrote this book as well as the book of Ruth. We are not told who the authors are. And secondly, canonicity. That is, does this book belong in the Bible? Should it be included in Scripture? It has always been considered Scripture by the Jewish people. According to Josephus, who is the second half of the first century A.D., the history of the Hebrews is from Moses to Artaxerxes, who was the son of the king in this book, was written by the prophets and worthy to be believed. So for Josephus, Esther is certainly a part of Scripture. The church has been much less enthusiastic about the book of Esther. Martin Luther could never reconcile himself to this book because he, it, he felt it did not have the saving truths of the gospel included in it. He and John Calvin, two of the great reformers, did not write commentaries on the book of Esther. But they were not alone. For the first seven centuries of the church, there was no commentary written by a Christian on the book of Esther. It's not until the Reformation, and not certainly not by Luther or Calvin, that serious commentator, or commentaries were written, but they were primarily historical as opposed to theological. So what is the problem? Why is it the church has been not so enthusiastic about this book? Well, let's talk about what is not the problem. One might think that historical accuracy is an issue. And without going into great detail, I would tell you that this, in fact, is not the problem. The events in this book took place, as the author tells us, during the reign of King Ahasuerus, 486 to 465 B.C. It's better known by his Greek name, Xerxes. And you'll notice in the NIV it has Xerxes, but in other translations it has Ahasuerus, his Persian name. He was the son and successor of Darius I, or Darius the Great. The beginning of his reign of Darius, we have the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, 
If you read Haggai and Zechariah, they discuss this at length. The decree of his grandfather, who was Cyrus the Great, permitted the return of the exiles, the Jewish exiles, to go back to Jerusalem after being in exile for 70 years. But very few Jews took him up on this opportunity. The majority of Jews stayed in the Persian Empire. Sixty years after Ezra and Nehemiah go, we find that there are still the majority of Jews living in the eastern part rather than being in the western side where Israel is located. This is where we find Esther and the events recorded in this book. I find it worth noting, because I do history, that Herodotus, who is oftentimes referred to as the father of history, Cicero gave him this name, was the first historian that we know of to collect uh, his materials systematically and critically and then to arrange them into what we would call a history. His book, in fact, the one that has survived, The Histories, one third of it deals with the king found here in Esther, that is uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus. And what is recorded by Herodotus certainly fits in with the profile we find in the book of Esther, including the fact that he listened to the advice of women. He was famous for his exploits with women, but he was also extremely cruel. He had taken his brother's wife and daughter, and after that there was mutilation and murder. It all seemed to indicate that we are reading about the same man. The setting should not present us a problem as well. Some might argue, well, you know, this whole book takes place outside of Israel. Well, it's certainly not the only book that we would say that about. Genesis tells us about Joseph in Egypt, and then the four remaining books of the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, none of these take place in the Promised Land. Israel is on its way to the Promised Land. Then the book of Daniel, all of it takes place in Babylon. By the way, Joseph and Daniel, I think, are sort of important to the story of Esther that we see that an Israelite, a Jew or a Hebrew, can in fact rise to a high position in a foreign court. And if you're interested in looking at this further, the language that is used of Joseph and of Esther are very similar. The accounts and the vocabulary are quite similar. So what is it? What is the problem? Why is it that the church is less than enthusiastic about this book? Well, there are certain things that are missing. Let me just give you a list of these things. First of all, there is no mention of God or God's name in this book at all. It's quite remarkable. Even in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, uh, God's name is mentioned at least once. But in the book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned at all. There is no mention of prayer. If you know the story of Esther, um, you know that they fasted, but there is no mention of prayer, that they did not pray that God would deliver them from the evil plot of Haman. There is no mention of sacrifice or making vows. If God would deliver them, then they would perform sacrifices. There is no indication of praise. After they are delivered from Haman, one would have thought praise and thanksgiving might be in order. We don't hear that either. There is no mention or quoting of scripture. And there is no evidence of particularly godly people in this story. Uh, We have Mordecai the Jew, who is, I guess, one of the heroes of the story, but he does the unthinkable. He encourages his cousin, 
his adopted daughter Esther to marry a heathen king, even though he must have known that God, in fact, had forbidden such intermarriage. It's an important issue. If you're reading through in the order of scripture, if you read the book of Ezra and then you read the book of Nehemiah, you know the idea of Jews marrying non-Jews is an important issue. It should not be done. And in fact, certain priests are cast out of the priesthood because they've done this. And now you have Mordecai telling his daughter, or his adopted daughter, Esther, that she should do this. Mordecai also commands her to hide the fact that she is Jewish. That is, that she has a relationship with the Hebrew God, because the king might disapprove of her religion. Had Esther revealed at the beginning that she was Jewish, then she might have been excluded from the whole process. And then she would have been able to honor God by marrying according to his standards and not her uncle's. There's something else that I find missing, and that is her Hebrew name. It is mentioned once in this book. If you look in chapter 2, verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The girl, who is also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Esther is her Persian name. It's mentioned 48 times in this book. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. It's mentioned only once. And then lastly, there seems to be no desire whatsoever to return to Israel. Cyrus has allowed them to return to their homeland, but they did not. Listen to how Mordecai is identified. This is in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. His great-grandfather had been taken into exile, yet Mordecai continued to live away from and apart from the people of God in Jerusalem. This is the setting in which we find the story of Esther. Chapter 1, in many ways, sets the historical setting uh, for how things unfold. The first nine verses, in fact, give us a sense of the splendor, the richness of the king Xerxes. As one writer put it, with an economy of words, the storyteller transports his listeners. Listen as I read the first nine verses here in Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Uh, 
Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he, want, or what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. We miss something when we read this in English. The first two words of this book in Hebrew would have caused, I think, the ordinary Jewish reader to despair. It is what we find in English, and it came to pass. In the, King, in the NIV it has, this is what has happened. Five times in the Old Testament, beyond this, we find these words. And in every case, it introduces impending doom or catastrophe. Um, in the same way, when somebody says, once upon a time, we know, oh, we're, that's code for you're going to tell us a fairy tale. In the same way, and it came to pass when it is mentioned five times, it always leads to catastrophe. In the end, it, there will be a happy ending. But before you get to the happy ending, you have to go through really, really dark times. So, as the original readers are reading this, they are prepared for the worse. And as the story opens, we're reading about a foreign ruler. Well, this can't be good. This is in the Hebrew Scriptures. We would think this would be about the Jews. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as depicted in history, was physically uh, imposing. He was taller than the average person at that time. But emotionally, he lacked tolerance and sensitivity. He was the grandson of Cyrus the Great, the son of Darius the Great. And even though he came to be known as Xerxes the Great, many would argue that he was less than that. His reign was marked in the early part by military success. And then we find him defeated by the Greeks twice. The events described here happened before his defeats. The picture that is painted is of a vast empire. He ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And as if to impress the reader, the storyteller tells us of Ahasuerus trying to impress his subjects. He has a great banquet for the officials of the empire that lasts six months. And then he hosts a seven-day banquet for all the people, not simply the rulers, but all the people in the town of Zusa, or Susa. He, is allow he allows everyone to drink the royal wine. This is, I don't know if it's against the law, but technically only the king is supposed to drink the royal wine. It's not for common consumption. And his queen Vashti hosts a separate banquet for the women. I think... Xerxes is trying too hard to win the affection of people and to impress them with his greatness. And then things turn. If you look at verses 10, 11, and 12. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty for the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. 
But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. It's the seventh day of the banquet. Technically, this has been going on for 186 days. This is the 187th day. And the king wants to show off the queen. She refuses. She refuses to be put on display. Um, There have been various theories as to why she refused. Uh, One was that the king wanted her to come in wearing her crown, as is mentioned here, and nothing else. Uh, We're not told that. Um, We are told that he was in high spirits. One would assume everybody else was, and I think to appear in front of a drunken group of men, it's not something the queen wished to do. What we know of Ahasuerus, we're not surprised that he becomes furious. That, in fact, he burns with anger. Who does she think she is, this Queen Vashti? Well, in fact, she was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She was of royal blood. And she chooses not to be treated as uh, a possession to be showed off to the people at his banquet. What is the king going to do? Look, if you would, at verses 13, 14, and 15. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shitha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Like a child who's been hurt by another child, King Xerxes, I think, reacts rather emotionally and immaturely rather than rationally. Rather than seeking reconciliation with his wife, he seeks revenge. I mean, seriously, do you need experts in the matters of law and justice to deal with the fact that your wife didn't want to show up? Is that, is that really necessary? Bring in the wise men. They'll know what to do. I think we're beginning to get the picture of this man Xerxes. And what is their advice? Well, one man speaks up, Mimukan, and as one commentator put it, the sky is falling. Look, if you would, at verse 16. Then Mamukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. I think Mamukan is playing the king. He knows 
what the king is like, and he speaks to him accordingly. He states the problem in verses 16, 17, and 18, and then he proposes a solution. And you will notice that he brings together the moral implications, the sociological implications, and the political uh, implications. His solution is not drastic. It is, he doesn't say you need to cut off her head or execute her or exile her or banish her. Simply say she cannot come into the presence of the king again. Isn't this ironic? That's what the whole thing was about in the first place. She didn't want to come into the presence of the king. It's like, okay, give her what she wants. She will not be able to come into your presence again. But seriously, seriously, did Mamukan or Xerxes or the other wise men think that the whole social fabric of the Persian and Median Empire was going to fall apart? That women were not going to respect their husbands? They were going to disrespect their husbands because the queen would not come when the king told her to come? I really don't think it's that big of an issue. But you are talking, after all, to the king over 127 provinces who at this point is acting like a child. And so basically you give in to his whims and you say, listen, this is really serious. Let's be honest, it's not that serious. okay? But he makes it a political issue. The wives of the nobles aren't going to obey their husbands anymore. And that's not good for the empire. And, and beyond that, not just the nobles, from the least to the greatest, women are going to start res- disrespecting their husbands. I really don't think that's going to happen. But Xerxes likes what he hears. So the solution is accepted. Verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Really? We need a royal decree in the ancient world to say that a man is the head of his household? I don't think so. Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, overreacts to a perceived slight. But it is this decision that this petulant, childlike ruler makes that sets the stage for the book of Esther. Without this petulance, without this overreaction, we don't have the book of Esther. It is because of this that we have this story. He is a less than ideal king who gets his feelings hurt by his wife. He overreacts. He asks his associates, his underlings for advice, who tell them what he wants to hear. And he goes with it. And yet God is able to accomplish his purposes, as we will see in this book. I was reminded as I was preparing this that I find myself distressed oftentimes at election times because rarely am I pleased with the results. Yet God is able to accomplish his purposes. You might be wondering, Damon, what can we learn from the book of Esther? A book in which there is no mention of God. There is no mention of prayer. There is no mention of praise. And we don't seem to find any particularly godly people. And yet here it is. It's in scripture. It's part of the canon. It's part of the Old Testament. What can we learn from this book? 
Well, the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will learn what God intends for us to learn from this all-important book. Let's pray together. Father, often we find ourselves distressed because people either that we work for, that we know, people in positions of power, act like spoiled children. They respond emotionally, they overreact, they make small things big and ignore the big things. We wonder how the world manages to keep going with such people making such important decisions. And yet you are still in control and your purposes will be accomplished. I pray that in the weeks to come as we go through the book of Esther, we would have a deeper appreciation of the fact that you are in control even when your name is not mentioned, when people do not pray, when they do not acknowledge you or praise you. when your people are not particularly godly. These do not hinder your work. Your purposes are still accomplished. May we trust in you. You who are merciful and mighty. We pray for Dan and Lonnie as they travel be gone the next couple weeks. You would watch over them, give them safety and good health and bring them back to us. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.